This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is my right-hand man, Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Gary Santos, CEO of Tilt Holdings. Thanks for taking the time, Gary. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. We're excited to dive in. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to the holiday season and uh, another really good conversation. Yeah, excited. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well. And just for the record, Gary, you're currently located in what state? Uh, I'm sitting in Massachusetts these days. I live in Salem, just north of uh, Boston, and that's where we have our biggest uh, flagship facility there. Not in Salem, obviously, but in Massachusetts. Awesome. I'm excited to dive into that, and it's pretty cool that another East Coaster joins and makes an appearance, Kellen. So uh, chalk another one down for us. <laughs> it's about time. So, Gary, before we dive into Tilt, we'd love the listeners to know a little bit about your background, how you got into the cannabis space. Sure. So I've worked in finance for the better part of 25 some odd years, mostly at startup companies on a lot of different industries. So if you were just getting ready to go IPO or maybe you had already gone public and you're looking to do some kind of some transformative M&A or something along those lines, that's usually where I would slot in on either the finance or the operations side. What I think has been interesting is through all of that, whether it's in finance, whether it's been uh, casino gaming equipment, whether it's been life sciences, they all had sort of similar talk tracks, right? Very complex. Nobody can understand barriers to entry. But at the end of the day, business is business. So a friend approached me about cannabis about two or three years ago. Uh, I had been on the periphery. My, my father uses uh, some CBD and now THC cream for some joint pain. And it became pretty clear that there was a lack of operational experience there. A lot of guys who had to raise money. A lot of people who had a passion for the plant, but marrying those two together were an issue. So I jumped in with both feet. I was lucky to start at a company, Columbia Care, that really showed me that you can be a pragmatic operator. You don't have to be all flash and, and you know sparkle. And then I went from there to Tilt, where you know the, the clear turnaround story uh, was in midstream at that point. So it was a great challenge. And it's been great to dust off things you know, that I've done throughout my career and have people look at me and say, wow, you're from the future. So you know, I think that, that's been fun and gratifying all at the same time. So I'd love to know, let's let's go back to the origin before you got into cannabis. Was there any hesitation to kind of dive into the industry? Obviously, cannabis, as you were said, comes with all these challenges and, and sometimes some stigmas. So was there any hesitation from your part to kind of dive in head first and, and join the cannabis industry? Uh, the industry, no. I mean, again, having worked in casino gaming, it's hard to sit there and talk about vice, you know, and not think about that. And even when I was working in finance, obviously, you know, the company I worked for focused on student loans. So I think along those lines, I think there's always a use case. The question is, how sustainable is it? What's the total addressable market? But most importantly, what are the bones of the companies that you're looking at? You know, whatever industry it's in. So I looked long and hard at Columbia Care. They're very strong. Similarly, I looked at Tilt. And while certainly their balance sheet wasn't as impressive, when I looked at the underlying businesses, I got really excited. And I saw that, wow, they haven't really been leaning into them. So if we could just get them focused and really get a good core strategy out into the market, this thing could take off. And, you know, I think from that perspective, I mean, if there was any hesitation, it's just understanding how the Canadian capital markets work. Definitely a little different. Don't get me wrong. I'd love to be back in the U.S. trading in the U.S. But, you know, I think like anything else, if you've got a good stock and a good story and can cultivate a good investor base, you can do some good things. You know, I think right now we're all just struggling because we are, we're missing one key piece of our, inst- of our investor base, the institutions. They're there scarcely, but no one's there in size. We solved that. And I think you'll see a much different industry in 2022. Yeah, I completely agree. So I'd love for our listeners who may be a little unfamiliar about Tilt Holding to kind of get a little more insight into some of the strategy and some of the core businesses that you discussed prior. Yeah, so we're a little bit of a different cat when it comes to being a multi-state operator. About half of our operations do not touch the plant. So that's our inhalation technology and accessories business, which really is based out of Arizona. And the primary focus is on vaping hardware. So we're one of five distributors of C-cell technology, the ceramic center coil. Uh, in fact, we were the entity that helped S'more, who is the Chinese uh, shop that actually owns the IP, migrate that technology from tobacco, where they have been doing a substantial amount of work, into the cannabis space. So we are the largest C-cell distributor. I think about 50% of C-cell distributed comes through us. Uh, it's really a business-to-business play. Uh, so there, we're not selling directly to end consumers. We're selling to brands, MSOs, LPs. Uh, throughout the country and uh, abroad. That's one half of the business. Then the other half of the business is your more traditional MSO. So we're in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and recently signed a partnership to enter New York. And there we have vertical operations, fully vertical in Massachusetts, where we have retail, cultivation, and manufacturing. 
Pennsylvania, it's cultivation and manufacturing. Ohio, it's just manufacturing. New York will be full vertical. So for us, what made it different was we wanted to take that B2B play that was happening in Jupiter, but bring it to plant touching where we own so much more of the supply chain. So Jupiter is a distributor. They don't really own the manufacturing. They don't own the IP. Uh, I think they do have the ability or we have to have the ability to change that paradigm a bit because we do have a full built out lab and we're constantly innovating. So I could see a future where we start creating some of our own products, maybe away from C-Cell a little bit and broaden the reach a little bit more. But looking on the plant touching side, we saw between the wholesale business we had in Massachusetts already, the wholesale business we have in Pennsylvania, we saw a really strong opportunity uh, to, to be that B2B provider. The trick was, how do you do that and not compete? And that's where our brand strategy came in. So we didn't want to own brands and become a house of brands because now we're competing again. We wanted to partner with the brands that want to come east. They might be really strong in California or Washington State or Colorado, but it means something totally different to try to scale that and bring it east. The regs are different. The form factors and formulations are different. So finding a true partner who understands that and wants to work with you to maintain your brand fidelity uh, and also share the economics, I think, is a different animal altogether. And we've been really excited by, I think, the amount of uptake. I think we had to make a lot of cold calls at the beginning of the year when we announced the strategy. At MJ Biz, uh, we, we had any number of meetings. I haven't run up and down the strip that much uh, without someone chasing me. Uh, so we probably had about two dozen meetings with brands and MSOs, really, looking to figure out how we can work together. I think that's really well said. And Kellen, I want you to dive into that strategy. We've talked to a ton of operators out there, and this one's different than, than some of the other strategies we've talked about. Can you kind of share a little bit about that? No, I think it, it is very different, honestly. The vapor industry, like vaping, I think is going to be one of the, the larger product categories moving forward. And I think the early on in the manufacturing and production of vape pens, I think there was a lot of issues with the hardware, which kind of put a bad taste, if you will, in a lot of consumers' mouths, right? They'd go buy a vape pen, it would leak. And so when Jupiter actually came on to the scene, maybe like three, four years ago is when they really started taking off the C-cell technology. It was like the first reliable vape pen I had seen in the market from a, a user's perspective. Not, I mean, it's manufactured much differently than the, the first generation vape pens were. I've, I've just heard stories about how clean and pristine uh, Jupiter's manufacturing facility is over in China. I heard it's like comparable to Qualcomm is what I've heard almost. And so what was the key kind of um, factor that motivated you, Gary, to, to kind of pursue acquiring Jupiter? Is there like a moment where you guys were like, okay, we really need to kind of double down on this technology because you saw the value? Could you kind of walk our listeners through that, that thought process? Sure. So that definitely predated me. So I think the original team that brought to public if you looked at their mandate, it was as wide as pretty much everybody else's mandate in Canada's back in circa 2018. They were going to be technology, hardware, software services, vertical integration, financing, management, distribution, you name it, they were going to do it. But you can never do all of those things. Uh, what they were good at was spotting very interesting assets. So they saw Jupiter, and Jupiter to them was intriguing because A, it didn't touch the plant. So it added the question, could you eventually uplist onto the you know, in the US. And if you only did that, sure, you probably could. But I think B, the fact that it's been profitable since day one, because it went this B2B path, instead of building out this massive marketing infrastructure to maintain its own brand, it chose to sit one step behind the brands and just connect basically the hardware together with the brands and act as that intermediary. Now that meant we had to be really good at supply chain management and make sure that you can get product from point A to point B but also have those QC and QA teams on the ground in China so that even though the factory might not be ours, you know, we are in there all the time. We're looking at the standards, we're doing the testing, and then we do regular testing at our lab in Arizona. So uh, I think it struck us as a completely different animal than just a pure distributor. I think those that just distribute, you have to look at the relationship and say, okay, there's some value there, but you're truly beholden to somebody else. Here, while we might not have that, the true manufacturing, the fact that we have the R&D and the QC, means that if we did decide to do something away from C-cell, for example, it's going to come with the same quality, the same intent, you know, the same prowess, if you will, uh, you know, whenever we decide to roll out. So I think that's, that's what made it interesting. And I have to assume that's what attracted the prior leadership team. They also got a few clunkers in there too. So I can't say they batted us out <laughs> or I wouldn't be here today. So Has that helped your guys' uh, networking with brands? Because Jupiter doesn't have the same regulations because it doesn't touch the plant. So you can travel, interstate commerce, all those kind of normal manufacturing things. 
but has it significantly helped your guys' like networking with brands and, and those kind of conversations? Absolutely. You know, we started this year with about 15, 20% of our revenue coming from people who touch both the plant touching and non-plant touching side. And it was purely coincidental. Nobody was trying to connect those dots. Now that we've gone intentionally after that cross-sell and the brand strategy, suddenly now we're up to about 40% of our revenue just in the nine months since we rolled out the, the plan uh, is now attributed to people who cross both lines. And I think it's given us an opportunity to have conversations where maybe we wouldn't have had them otherwise. And then really even just introducing them again to who Tilt is, there's been a couple of those aha moments. Like when Arrow, who's one of Jupiter's oldest customers, was saying, hey, we want to get into Pennsylvania. You know, anybody who's doing anything in Pennsylvania, it's like, yeah, guys, us. So you know, <laughs> it's a lot easier to do. So uh, I look forward to a lot of those ongoing conversations. And look, we try to make sure when we, we make these arrangements, especially in the brand side, we don't want brands overlapping each other if we can avoid it. So we don't want to become just a pure contract manufacturer. We're trying to fill out what we think is a good curated portfolio that goes after that 30% of the MSO shelf space that they dedicate to third-party products. So come to us. We're like the Frito-Lay truck. We'll roll in, you grab what you need, and we move on. So that's the hope. How challenging? I mean, obviously, everybody, we already know the answer. It's got to be extremely challenging. But for a company that's operating vertically integrated, who has operations in multiple states with all the challenges that go in just that area, now to add on the technology side as well, from a day-to-day standpoint, are you being pulled in multiple directions from different conceptual thoughts? Like, can you kind of share some insights on how that works? I mean, it's easy to get distracted and lean too much on one side of the business to the other. And I think putting together a really solid team and making sure they understand exactly what the mission is and what we're trying to accomplish has been extremely helpful. The team I have now, uh, you know, I think all the, all the big hiring's done. I've got all the right people in all the right places. They're handpicked. And look, many of them have carried through from prior to years. This wasn't just a blowout of the team. Uh, I think getting them to understand how we need to treat our partners' brands as if they were our own and not get into these arguments is a key component to that. And also never forgetting where you fit in that value proposition, right? So if you're not growing good flour and you're not processing efficiently and you're not managing your supply chain, well, then you're just a good story who can't seem to execute. And, you know, I'm lucky to have such a strong team around me that we can focus on these things. We just came back from four straight days, our annual planning and budget sessions. And, you know, I could very easily get pulled in a lot of directions, but with the team I have, I could just as easily not. So I'm excited for what comes forward. Doesn't mean I, you know, I now can't spend a little more time focusing on some maybe extraordinary things out there. Now, a lot of our growth has been organic. I know that in 2023 and beyond, we're going to have to think a little bit wider, a little bit bigger, and that takes some time and some focus. So I'm glad to have that availability because the day-to-day stuff, I think, is in great hands. It's really well said. So from a 2023 standpoint, obviously you can't see a crystal ball into the future. And obviously estates kind of take a little longer looking at New York to kind of get their things together. How, how do you prioritize, let's say, growth, growth versus optimization when it comes to budgetary versus resources? Because you, you don't have capital to deploy in all the different areas. You have to be pretty strategic with which direction you want to go. And if you start deploying heavy capital assets into one area and it takes a little longer, that might kind of tie up resources in another direction. So how, how does that work? So, I mean, we're not big fans of growth at any cost. I think we've seen that where people just went crazy growing top-line revenue, and then you look at their margins, and there just wasn't a compelling story. Now, I think a lot of the larger operators are starting to come through that a little bit more as the M&A has slowed a little bit. I think for us, it's the same thing. We're constantly optimizing. Uh, I don't ever want to be in a situation where I know I could be doing something better, but I'm not because there's something shiny over here to go stare at. So there's a team that just focuses on that. Uh, at the same time, when we look at new opportunities, we acknowledge that, yeah, it would be great to write checks, but frankly, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So we looked at New York, and that's a great example. I mean, we saw competitors, you know, taking on $75 million of data, writing checks for $45 million. You know, for us, a partnership where we put a lot less money up front, so 700000 total, to partner and enter with the, the Shinnecock, which half was stock, meant that every dollar we deploy is towards building a facility that will then start generating revenue that will make money for everybody, right? So coming up with unique opportunities to do that takes a little longer, but I think what we're finding is there's a lot of really good partners who just haven't really understood that there are other people who are willing to partner, you know, I, I think reasonably and not just take 80 or 90% of the economics. So it might mean we have to do a few more of those partnerships than you know if we just went for every last basis point, but I'd rather do that because that's the definition of diversification. And if we're building this to last, we need good, strong partnerships, 
good diversification and rational margins because those three things will persist. John, you want to, I was just curious, how long do you, is it um, a lot longer from a vetting standpoint and a due diligence standpoint to find those, like the correct partner that's willing to kind of sit down at the table with you guys? It's not as hard as you think because I think those people stand out. So the Shinnecock are a great example, right? A lot of people just want to get into cannabis and they're not sure why, how, or, you know, whether this is going to work and at what level. Uh, I think they had such a realistic view of what they needed the the industry to do for them. So they had they wanted it to be an ongoing economic engine that would be sustainable over time. So this wasn't a quick hit to clip as much coupon as you possibly can and then get out again, right? So I think finding folks like that and who really thought it through, and you look at the regulations, for example, that they drafted, they mimic New York State because they understand the future is working hand in glove with New York State. Those people really jump off the page. People like, you know, say this 2018 cannabis folks, which is like, buy everything, make a lot of big splash. Those folks really stand out now as kind of pariahs. So I think I think it's it's easy to get past that first round. Then you have to take a look at, well, what have you been doing in the meantime? Now, if you're just a concept, which is what Shinnecock was, it's a lot easier, right? There's not a lot of things to unwind. There are some other folks out there who've gotten a little over the tips of their skis. I think they present a tremendous opportunity, but you do have to dig in deeper to make sure there's no aha moments because how people achieve financing and some of the deals they sign, it's kind of remarkable, some of the things that have been out there in the industry that have to be unwound or contemplated. So that that part takes a little longer if it's a more established player. For the newer players, I think it's it's an easier process because we know what we're looking for. So you guys don't have to, like with the established players, you probably have to do more due diligence in terms of how their supply chain is actually connected and if it fits well with your guys' current business model and those kind of those kind of conversations, if you will. Yeah, it's more just getting into their financing. How much have they encumbered of their assets already? How levered are they along those lines? Uh, you know, how much how much of friends and family are involved, and what are the expectations? And I think the other piece for existing shops is you have investor fatigue, where really they're doing this because everybody just wants to tap out. They've had uh, all those things are are issues. I would never say I walk away from that because I look at that as opportunities to get good deals. At the end of the day, if everything was shiny and did 100 miles an hour, they'd all be expensive, right? So some dent and scratch never hurt anybody, as long as you're smart about it, you know? And I think that's where taking the time to really dig into those details. And I'm lucky that, you know, a lot of the folks I have, I've worked with before in cap markets on very complex structured finance deals. They all know how to read contracts. They all know how to break all that stuff down. So uh, it makes the job a lot easier. I want to talk more about the Shinnecock partnership. So when you guys link up, is it, deployment of assets onto their site to help them kind of get started? Are you kind of more of a secondary approach from like a managerial perspective saying like, here, this is some guidance, you know, what type of a partnership approach is it? Is it hands-on or is it more kind of top level? I think initially it's going to be extremely hands-on. So obviously we're providing the financing and then also all the design and con- construction. So we're, we're designing what the facility is going to look like. We're managing the entire build out of that facility. And then we acknowledge that while they have a passion for the plant and they have a long legacy of living with the plant, Going from that to being able to produce it in a 60,000 square foot facility is a much different animal, right? And everybody who's ever grown in their basement can tell you that. So I think from that perspective, we'll start off providing expertise, but our goal is to hire as many of the natives who live on on sovereign land as possible and train them up. Now, obviously, they're not going to step right into senior level positions on day one, but there's no reason why they can't have a career progression, much in the same way we do our own leadership training throughout TILT. We want to extend that program to the Shinnecock Nation as well. And for all those who raise their hand and want to be involved, there will be a career path for them. Uh, Obviously, the general manager of that uh, operation, Sinead Bullock, uh, she is a Shinnecock member. So, you know, she will be front and center uh, as the face of that organization and be the overall manager of that organization. But we'll be providing a lot of that structural input uh, along the way and train them up. So it's one of those where it's a nine-year contract. I think if we do our job well, we should have no trouble renewing that contract. And, you know, both parties, they get a significant amount of the capital out of this. I think they get about 75% of the free cash flow will flow to the Shinnecock Nation. So, you know, we figure a well-constructed partnership like that, as long as we both parties deliver, we should be in business for quite some time. Yeah, and it sounds great. And Kellen, I want to kind of lean into you there because what Gary's describing about educating them and helping them, putting them in a position to seat is so crucial because as we've talked about a bunch of times on this podcast, industry is hard and cultivation is challenging and there's all these complex issues that go with it from a day-to-day standpoint. So having experienced individuals like Gary's team come in and kind of assist in the process and then educate them to be able to kind of fly on their own is so valuable. Yeah, I think it's honestly, it's the only way not to spend a significant amount of capital learning 
You know what I mean? I think that scale scalability is probably the hardest aspect of bringing the knowledge from like the legacy market into a regulated industry, right? Like you just said, Gary, like gr- growing in your basement is a lot different than growing in a 60,000 square foot warehouse that is top of the line, you know what I mean? Or state of the art. Um, so I think that educating your employees is, it's the highest return on an investment I think a company can make right now, especially when they're just kind of getting their feet off the ground in a new state. People are your organization, right? I think that the better people you have on staff is going to just create a better business. So I think that when you invest into training and education of your employees, you're investing into the company in the long long run. And so what kind of um, resources are you guys going to deploy as far as are you going to send multiple people from like your leadership team or management team from Massachusetts? Are they going to then go down to New York and spend years there? Are you guys going to try to do it remotely? Like, what is that process going to look like, Gary? So I think it'll come in stages. And initially, while we're doing the build out, we could easily identify those. We could do a hiring fair and identify those people that are very interested in learning the business and bring them up into Massachusetts and work at our Taunton facility and train with our supervisors there. So that'll be a good way to get it off the ground while we're still building. As we go down the pipe, I would expect that we would start to hire some folks who would be positioned in New York. Obviously, when all is said and done, if they start to roll off, we can bring them back. But the expectation would be to have boots on the ground in New York as well, especially in those supervisory roles. Because you know, I think it's one thing to sort of have a leadership training program. It's the day-to-day reinforcement, a lot of those principles that really matter, and getting people to understand how important things like risk and compliance can truly be and, and how you have to run a certain type of facility especially if you're hoping to trade your product in the greater New York state area. So uh, it will be involved. I anticipate us you know, adding at least a two dozen or so employees probably on our end as we get closer to opening up and then also seeing what the uptake is on the Shinnecock sovereign land. I mean, if, if there's not as many people that are interested in working, we'll give them all the first, first mover advantage, but we do still have to staff the facility. So you know, we'll see what we can do to hire from the surrounding area as well. It'll be on uh, over time, and we've got a really great head of uh, SV, an SVP of Human uh, Resource who has done this for Lowe's. So uh, I'm pretty excited about what that will do for us as we try to roll this out. And I think it also gets to the larger question of social equity right across the stack. The easiest way to achieve social equity is make sure people are appropriately trained and get true equal opportunity, not just here's a license and here's a few dollars, go have fun and build a business. It's how do we train them to succeed? And I think it's incumbent on all the first movers. I'm going to count tilt in that first mover pile, the original MSOs. You should be trying to make this a better uh, industry for the next round. It's going to be more sustainable. At some point, these 60, 70, 80% margins will die away as the, as the industry matures. You've got to have that next wave to take it, you know, make it one step better. And I feel that's, that's an important mission for us. I can't say that everybody agrees with that. I think you need a special board who would willingly say, yeah, go ahead, give away 75% of the free cash flow but they get the joke that that's how you build a sustainable business versus one that just has an astronomical climb and then flatlines. I have a question. So the Shinnecock Nation is indigenous people, right? So they live on sovereign land. Do they have to follow the same state guidelines as New York is setting out the state of New York because it is a sovereign nation? How does that play with each other from a regulatory standpoint? So they do have their own cannabis control commission. So for example, they have already approved adult use uh, sales on on sovereign ground along with medical sales. So if we had that dispensary up and running right now, we would be the only operating dispensary selling both medical and adult use. Uh, I think the way they've chosen to build their program, though, is they're mimicking a lot of what New York State is doing because they know to cross state lines, you're going to have to be somewhere in that range, right? So, you know, whether it's the products themselves, whether it's, you know, what the form factors might be, they're going to do everything they can to mimic as best possible. Right now, it's true. You could go on the sovereign ground, and if you could buy adult use, you could leave with, I think it's up to three ounces based on New York State regulation. But you know, I think there, we're going to encourage them to continue to mimic everything you can from New York State. So when that moment comes, for us, the holy grail is that wholesaling. It's not that it won't be a viable business just selling through one dispensary out in the Hamptons, but if we can wholesale to the rest of the state, that's going to be a windfall, uh, you know, for the for the tribe. I know a lot of our Long Island listeners are very eager to hear you open that up, so they can all get in the car pretty quickly after and make the trip, including myself. So, <laughs> fingers crossed, and that things go quick. So, continuing on that path, a little bit different. So, I read on your website limited license states for East Coast markets. 
with operations in Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New York. Can you share a little bit more? Is it specifically approaching the limited license that it's attractive and the East Coast, or are they kind of independent strategy? Can you kind of break that down a little bit? I mean, I've talked before about having this concept of a Northeast corridor, right? So you think about New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, you have Pennsylvania, Ohio, we're all kind of clumped together. And one of the rationales behind that is in a fully legalized market, I like having all of my cannabis assets within a few hundred miles of each other. So I can literally put my head of cannabis ops in a car and he can drive each of those realistically each day. It also means that we could be tactical. So we have greenhouse grow and they're high tech. So I hate to use the word greenhouse, but high tech greenhouse style grow in Pennsylvania. We've got full indoor in Massachusetts. So if I now can go across state lines, I'll grow my biomass in the greenhouse, my super high end flower up in Massachusetts, and everything is transportable, you know, without having to worry about massive shipping costs. So I think it also presents an interesting corridor for brands that want to come east. So if you're a premium brand, or if you're not, if you're just a value brand, your target's probably the whole Northeast area. It's not to say Florida isn't a great spot, but there's no wholesale down there. So, you know, I think there it's kind of created this nice little nexus for us. Now, do we limit ourselves there? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, certainly as we look out, we look at all the same states that all the other MSOs look at, but we don't want to be spread so thin that we just have a toehold in so many different states, but no depth. I like, you know, being in that one area where kind of the demographic starts to look the same and the product suite starts to look the same. And yes, we have to work through some regulatory issues with medical markets versus adult use of medical markets, but it's much easier to navigate. The limited license also keeps us from having to worry too much about the competition. So in Massachusetts, even though we have to have three stores, nobody has more than three stores. So we can't be any bigger. So what we're doing is we're going to start sharing a lot of our shelf space with our MSO partners. Those that buy a lot from us can put stuff on our shelves. So we'll extend their store into our store because, again, we don't care so much about our in-house brand as we do about being a good partner. Yeah, and there's a couple levels to that as well, right? The the purchasing behavior of the individuals in a in a closer geographic region likely resemble each other. Where in some in summer operations, California and Florida, the purchasing habits are very different. So having all of your entities kind of in a similar area, you can kind of lock down and understand. All right, thirty four to forty really likes these form factors. We can kind of double down here and really start pushing up. Plus, with East Coast markets still being really new, the floodgates really haven't even opened yet. No, and you know, it's it's we've always felt that CPG is where this is going to go. You know, and and there'll be brands, but there'll also be form factors that are going to be very important to people. And what is interesting is it's true the East Coast is just getting going. And at times there's been such innovation on the West Coast that is much further along than the East Coast is, just because they've been with the plant that much longer. It's a different kind of uh, society out there. So we've had to tell some brands, you know what, you can dial it back a little bit if you want, because I'm not sure people are going to pay for that extra piece that they don't even realize they should have yet. So it allows you to have a much longer runway, I think, too, in terms of product development, where you can roll these things out in stages and really start to get the market excited about stuff. Uh, I mean, think about it. I had a live resin start out on the West Coast. It was too much growth. They had to freeze it. Boom. Now we have live resin, right? That probably wouldn't have started on the East Coast, right? So I think it's just those kinds of things, how you can bring the innovation across and watch how it grows and see what's worked in the other markets. And frankly, if you can make it in California, which is, you know, clearly hyper competitive race to the bottom market, you got a pretty nice runway on the East. I wonder, in your opinion, Gary, does there need to be a difference in, in messaging between the West Coast brands and the East Coast, just based on the educational level and the experience between the products? I don't know if it's messaging or just a little more education. You know, let people know why they should care about a certain form, a certain terpene blend, or why they should care about a certain form factor, right? Sometimes it's going to be obvious. Uh, more times than not, it's probably not. There are just variations on a theme or slight gradations. You know, do you want natural terpenes or not? Do you want infused or not? So I think a little more education, I've noticed on the vaping side, that's been an important piece to the Jupiter business. Why is C-cell what it is? Why are certain things work better with certain concentrate blends than others, right? And I think that's going to continue, especially as we look on the on that particular side of the business at the emergence of live resin, the rosins, the waxes, the shatters. Traditional vape products are not probably going to work particularly well there. So how do you get the fidelity that you had made with a C-cell with a high viscosity concentrate and bring that over to a rosin? You know, I think those are the kinds of things that we have to work on. And it's, I think it's up and down the stack. I mean, somebody had to figure out why Coke was Coke and Pepsi was Pepsi. They didn't just invent themselves. Right. So and that's up to us to try to help tell that story. Kellen, your thoughts on that? I mean, I think he said it perfectly. You know what I mean? I think that as far as the, I want to go back to like building the Northeast Corridor. I think that that is so valuable from a business perspective because 
not only are you creating kind of like um, an incubation hub for brands on the entire East Coast, you're providing them all the resources to help the, that transition be seamless for them from a brand perspective. They don't have to come in and look for land and, and build out this infrastructure that takes, you know, I mean, years to build out grows and dispensaries and, and build brand awareness. Instead, they can just come in and do what they do best in terms of just pushing their brand and educating consumers. And so was that part of the thought process from building that Northeast corridor is being able to kind of provide these brands who have just been working so hard on the West coast to survive just kind of an easy path in to help educate the the Northeast corridor from that perspective. Yeah. That, that was a big piece of it, you know, and you know, I think staying lean the way we have and sort of being a Switzerland of brands, gives us that luxury of being able to be willing to share those brands. Most typically when you sign up with an MSO or an exclusive, you're limited to their footprint, right? So again, yeah. go back to Massachusetts, you get to be sold in three stores. For us, we sell to about 60% of the stores in Massachusetts in addition to our own. In Pennsylvania, I think it's about 90 or 95% of the stores we sell into. And we're agnostic. You could be an MSO, you could be an independent mom and pop standalone shop. It doesn't really matter. So if you think about the legalized world, if it ever gets to the point where you can order online and actually get Amazon or somebody to deliver, we're going to be agnostic to where it gets sold. We'll make sure it gets to where it needs to be so it can be delivered accordingly. But it won't really matter to us whether somebody props up a big box store of, of weed or not. So it is part and parcel with what we thought we could do for value add. Complex value chain, uh, supply chain, uh, complex product structures and brand structures, and do our best to not only manage the chain, but keep that brand fidelity and help them understand how to get the same traction in Massachusetts that they've got in California. Before we dive into the supply chain, there's one aspect you just didn't expand upon, which is if you see a competitor's product is flying off the shelf in a form factor that you don't currently produce, you likely can consider it in the future, maybe similar to how Amazon did with the batteries. Is that a concept you've considered internally? In terms of what, working with them or just trying to mimic? Maybe mimicking and saying, hey, maybe this, like the beverage is flying off the shelf. Maybe we should consider investing in a beverage company. We've seen this is really important to the demographic we've locked in in our stands. Our competitor's product is flying off the shelf. Maybe this is a good product category to look for in our core location here in the Northeast. Sure. We're always looking at what's hot in the market uh, because that helps us decide which brands make sense, right? So we're looking for intentional brand architecture. Uh, you know, like some of those celebrity endorsed brands where it's literally the name and there's no other piece to it. That's not exciting to us. But if you give, you know, a real thoughtful piece where there's a great origin story and there's an actual construct to the brand, we love those. Same thing with the form factors. If we see a particular form factor is flying, we really want to understand what is it about it? Is it just a great marketing campaign? Because, I mean, we've seen some of those where, you know, yesterday's super hot edible is today's I can't sell it at a discount product, right? So I think trying to find something that's sustainable too. Uh, we tend to look at that. And that comes down to understanding what is it that end users are looking for, right? So is it a form factor? Is it the experience? You know, what, what is it that they need out of that? And then we try to find the right brands that we can match up with that. Now, if there is no brand that does that, and it's one of those opportunities where we need to develop it on our own, we do have our in-house brand, Standard Farms. So, you know, it's kind of there to plug the holes where there might be in certain markets. I have a question about kind of protecting the brands as they come from the, the West Coast to the East Coast. How, how do you guys, do you have to work really, really closely with the brands from a QAQC standpoint to make sure that the product that they're selling in, in say, Oregon or California is identical or as close as you can be from a, a product standpoint and a, a QAQC standpoint on the East Coast? Is, is that something where you guys are, your teams are just working really closely together or that brand actually sends out operators that have kind of implemented their SOPs on the West Coast or so the East Coast? Could you... Could you kind of shed some light on, on how that process might work to ensure the consistency across the country? Sure. So our preference is always to have our team, you know, doing all the, the labor on. So we want to be a turnkey operation. We come in with your SOPs. We sit down. We talk about what flour is available. We talk about what's allowable in the state. And then we start to navigate in on can we truly replicate your product or what's the best way to get close enough to it that remains on brand. And that's what we spend time working. Generally, we're talking to the CEOs, the COOs, the highest levels, because most of these brands are very hands-on. Uh, and we kind of talk through whether it's how to create an existing product or if there's a product they've been waiting to create, but they just haven't had the opportunity. So Old Pal is a great example, right? They wanted to do a brownie, an edible. Uh, they hadn't done an edible anywhere else. And of course, they picked the brownie, which is totally on brand. So something as simple as that while at the same time trying to look at what kind of flour can get you a similar THC profile and how do we maintain something that is as close as you can get, knowing that I can't quite get all the same plants from point A to point B. 
So, you know, I think from that perspective, it's very interactive. Uh, you know, our teams have been very good at activating and staying true to the brands and actually raising their hands. And they said, look, this is something that if you do this, is going to be different. I'm not sure you want to go down this path. Or maybe you don't want to launch all of these SKUs. Maybe it's just a few of these SKUs. Those types of uh, conversations happen pretty much every day between our ops teams and then, you know, the senior level teams over at the different brands. What has surprised you the most for running an MSO? What, something that an everyday user of the plan or, or intro, hobbyist of the industry wouldn't know? Wow, that's a good one. You know, it's funny. I think from an everyday perspective, I guess, it does amaze me uh, how different each harvest can truly be, even if it's the same strain. Same strain, same light, same fertigation, and you can just get somewhat different results, especially in the Northeast where you have such wild swings in the temperatures. You know, and I think, you know, the assumption is, hey, I grow indoors, so I'm impervious to all of this. You're really not. Growing in Massachusetts, it's hard. And if you look at the HVAC system we use, for example, it's not controlling humidity by temperature. It's controlling temperature through humidity. It's kind of inverted, right? You have to, because in Massachusetts, you get these wild swings of humidity. So I think the level of science that really goes into growing these plants, I never appreciated it anywhere near the level now. I mean, I know soil matters. I know there are a few different things along the way. But when you go into these grows, it is literally science. You know, every step of the way and everything they try and document stuff. It's so much, there's a feel to it, don't get me wrong. But there's also an awful lot of science that goes into these things and how they bring certain strains together and the, the genome hunting and stuff that goes on. So I'm much more appreciative of that than, you know, 15, 20 years ago when, uh, let's just say the friends I had weren't quite as sophisticated. That's well said. All right, let's talk supply chain quickly in cannabis. How does it currently differ from the mainstream CPG industry? Well, I mean, obviously the biggest issue is you can't build your traditional hub and spoke, right? Normally I'd put my grow out somewhere in the middle of nowhere where the temperature is pretty consistent. I'd put my manufacturing near a transportation hub and then I can get out to every state I need to be in. I think here what makes it challenging is no matter how many states you're in, each state is its own independent business. You can't cross the state lines. And as much as we can say, well, we can centralize certain things, you can, and you can certainly manage the non-plant touching parts of the supply chain, right? So buying your fertilizer and all your supplies that way, certainly you can do that. Packaging is probably the biggest challenge I've seen because so much of it comes from China. So that's the thing that at least for tilt. We've got such tremendous experience with getting our vape products from China. Uh, we know all about the challenges of Chinese New Year and getting ships to the docks and getting them unloaded and when to air freight versus when to put them on water. So I think the packaging probably is the one that jams people up the most. Suddenly working with brands, they wait to order packaging until they need it and it's too late. Next thing you know, you go from a scarcity factor to just really annoyed consumers. Uh, you know, so I think that's, that's probably the biggest challenge that faces most of the plant touching side, short of running these businesses as independent operations. Do you see it being more data-driven decision-making in the future where instead of being reactive and saying, we're short on this now, it's time to reorder, kind of avoiding the bulb effect of saying, here's our stocking level. Once it hits here, we place a reorder. Yeah, it's, it's true demand planning. And I think the transition you're seeing on the East Coast is a lot of these states have been supply constrained, Right. So to a certain extent, you knew whatever you made, you, could, you were going to sell through. And if all you do is look at your former inventory levels and you just keep working off of those, that's problematic because you're not paying attention to where the market is going. So you really got to stay on top of your trends, see what's moving, see what's sitting on people's shelves and they're being forced to discount. And then to your point, as you look at the supplies you need to order and the packaging you need to order, you have to be way out in front of that. So it's demand planning, which means connecting with each of the shops you sell into to understand what they need, how they tend to order, and see what their habits are. I know with our Jupiter division, we do that all the time. For budgeting for them, they'll just call about all 100 of our top 100 customers and say, okay, what are you planning on ordering and when? And it's hard to get some of these shops to think that way. Right? They're not thinking 12 months out. So it's bringing them into that reality. And I think more and more are starting to see that, and they're starting to work with us uh, more effectively. Uh -huh. Uh, in like um, analysts and kind of predictive models to help uh, with those decisions? Because um, they're pretty far out, right? Like you don't, we, it's hard to predict what sales are going to be like in next July if you're an MSO that's just trying to get through the Christmas rush right now. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's the challenge. So I think internally we have a pretty strong finance team. Uh, you know, they've been working on some FP&A models. Uh, the hard part with most models is they're backwards looking and they try to predict the future using variables from the past. <laughs> I, mean, I think that's the part that becomes fun. So the last four days in Arizona, we spent just kind of taking one of those models and turning it on its ear saying, okay, well, if we buy into that assumption, why did I just see this in our vault? 
And then we start working through what that looks like. So it's, it's an iterative process. You know, I don't think this is one of those ones where you get a bunch of Bane guys to come strolling in and whip out a couple of supermodels that will set you up for nothing you know, a long time. <laughs> it's got to be a little more interactive and iterative. If cannabis wasn't hard enough, all of your, your previous looking models included all COVID. So now you have to reduce that, that variability of understanding. People aren't going to be locked home. So what are those real numbers? It's hard to really, really know. Yeah, I mean, the, the vaping alone, right? So you went from the vape crisis of 2019, you had like one good month in 2020, went right into a respiratory pandemic. So you couldn't throw much more at vaping. Um, <laughs> but I think our team did a pretty good job of staying in touch, watching people work through their, their inventory. Um, you know, as a result, you probably end up spending a little more money carrying inventory for your customers. So right now we're probably at one of our highest inventory levels than we've ever been. But part of that's for supply chain management. Part of it's because there has been some, you know, erratic, uh, behavior in some of the ordering. But you know, you're starting to see the bigger players, they're also starting to centralize a lot of their procurement too, which is helpful. Before that, you know, if you dealt with a big MSO that was in 18 states, you probably got 18 different phone calls for the same MSO. Now they're starting to centralize. Uh, so it makes it a little bit easier. Now, in the case of hardware, that makes it very easy because that hardware is interchangeable. It can go across state lines until they fill it. You know, it's a little different with the plant touching side. Yeah. Do you think everyone's moving closer to those those centralized locations based on potential for interstate commerce coming down sooner rather than later, or do you think that's just a strategic decision that they've invested in now? I mean, they did what they had to do, right? I mean, one, at one point, Coca Cola owned the sugarcane fields, and then they didn't have to, right? So I think to a certain extent, to operate, you had no choice. So, uh, you know, now whether long-term, if you cross state lines, what does that mean? Probably means at some point you'll see some type of centralization. But, I mean, folks have so much invested in these operations. I don't know if they'll just quickly flip a switch and go get a big warehouse in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, they're going to have to manage through that overhead and infrastructure, which is why we're fighting so hard to stay asset light so that the assets complement each other but don't duplicate necessarily, except we're absolutely necessary. That's been our approach, but you know, I would suspect, and certainly one of the reasons why we've stayed away from that is we don't want to be the folks sitting there with all these stores and all these different you know uh, outlets here that we have to now suddenly manage and figure out what we're going to do, because margins will start to compress, prices will come down, and you're not going to have that first mover advantage forever. No way. Since you've been in the cannabinoid industry, what has been the biggest misconception? You know, it's funny. I think that everybody just wants to get high. You know, it's it's not episodic. There are certainly folks out there who definitely do purchase that way, depending on the demographic. But the number of use cases I've seen, uh, the medical aspect, I didn't really fully appreciate. And I sometimes wonder, if you discovered this plant today and you showed the medical benefits of it today, you'd probably be buying it down the aisles of Whole Foods in so many different form factors. But you've got over 100 years of prohibition. You've got the counterculture movement. You've got Everybody has a view on cannabis, right? It's like the only emerging industry I've ever worked in where you don't really have to educate people about the core product. In fact, you have to uneducate them and re-educate them uh, because they all have a, a you know bizarre view on how you can make money or not make money with cannabis. So I think that, that's been probably the biggest eye-opener for me that there's so much good that could be done here if we could just get past some of those other pieces and just to have it on schedule one with the other drugs that are there. It's like, I get it, some call it a gateway drug, but you look, you look at what this particular drug does, if, if used in the right way, there's a lot of benefits here that are just being pushed over, you know, when, when, it comes, when it comes up on schedule one. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you can sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Business is business. Uh, I've heard people say to me, hey, budgets don't matter in cannabis. Productivity doesn't matter in cannabis. And most of those people, maybe it didn't, and they're probably trying to figure out what their next career move looks like. The reality is it does matter. At the end of the day, you're trying to turn a passion and something that you're intimately you know, attached to and involved with into a career, into a business, into an industry. So you have to remember that there are some rules of business that do have to apply. And it doesn't mean that you're selling out to the man. It doesn't mean that you're becoming some big business, you know, uh, start shirt kind of corporate type. It's just you need capital. You need resources to be able to do what you're going to do. And if you truly are into this, because you believe in the plant and you're trying to spread uh, you know, that plant around to as many people and as many form factors, you need those resources. So never, never convince yourself that the rules don't apply to you just because you happen to work in cannabis. Well said. All right, prediction time. It's 2025. For plant-touching businesses, is vertical integration the most profitable business model for cannabis? 
predicated on legalization? I don't think so. I think I think it starts to become a drain on the market. I think you're carrying way too much of an infrastructure. And if it's truly legalized, you don't want to be carrying 18 independent businesses in 18 different states. At some point, you've got to consolidate. And whether you hold on to vertical integration, but just do it from a more centralized location or whether, I mean, you hear a lot of people talk about the grow will get commoditized. I think retail could get commoditized too. People like to go to those big box stores, right? They might want to buy online. But that centerpiece, that, that the complex supply chain, right? The complex manufacturing, those things are still going to matter. And I think there'll always be a place for that. So true vertical integration probably might become an issue, but I do think there'll still be a place to connect some of those dots together and take advantage of the parts of the business that commoditize. Kellen. I agree with Gary. I think he said earlier on the pod that Coca-Cola used to own the sugar fields. They don't anymore. So they moved away from vertical integration to kind of focus on what, what they were good at, right? Also, I mean, if you look at like other manufacturing or other large industries, right? Like GE, GE is breaking up now um, into three separate entities. Originally, they were completely vertical because everything that they made required electricity, right? So they could just electrify everything. And now they've learned that hundred years later or so, right? That it just doesn't play well when you're trying to focus on all of these different businesses. And I think you even said it earlier too, Brian, when you were like, is it challenging diversity of conversations that you're going to have running a completely vertical company? You're going to have agricultural conversations running an agricultural business, right? You're going to have chemical manufacturing uh, conversations when you're dealing with derivative products such as live resin, right? And then you have CPG conversations from a business perspective. I think that that's just too much to be successful when you have, uh, say, you're competing against a group that is solely focusing on one business. They're going to get better at it than you when you're spreading your resources that thin. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I, I don't think the everyday person understands the complexity and the challenges that Gary kind of like simplified for them of running 18 different businesses all wrapped up into one. And within that, each state operates completely differently. It's not like it's like, okay, just as a universal standpoint, like New York, Pennsylvania, California, Florida. Here are the rules. Everyone has their own challenges, their own issues, and their own kind of everyday surprises, for example. But in 2025, I would imagine that some of the bigger players aren't going to be ready to kind of divest some of their assets because they've invested so much to grow, 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 grow. You hear Boris Jordan of Pure Leap always just smash the table, grow, 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 grow. And he's not going to be wanting to kind of shuffle up his chips back into the middle to have a more centralized specific USP. So I think by 2025, vertical integration still stands for a bunch of companies. But I think as time progresses, they're going to look to kind of double down on USPs. But maybe someone ends up trying to own the whole thing. And that's their strategic approach from seed to to smoke. Who knows? That's interesting, you know, because you certainly you heard it in some of the earnings uh, calls over the last couple of weeks that with with some of the demand waning a little bit, and certainly with disposable income being hit with inflation, you figure adult use markets are probably the most prone to a downturn a little bit, you know, that they're starting to focus more internally, right, on their own brands, on their everything. I hear that, and I kind of cringe a little bit. It's like, I get why you're doing it, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. If you're doing it because you have the best brand, then by all means, please go ahead and do it. If you're doing it to protect margin, to me, that's not a long-term strategy, right? Somebody will, and especially if the world's going to CPG at some point, you don't want to be that guy who's trying to own all of it just to make it squeeze as much out as you possibly can. Recognize what the new world looks like and see if your operating model can be tweaked in some way, shape, or form. And I think that's that's going to be hard for some of these guys because they spent a lot of time telling everyone how vertical was so critical and so important in the way to go. And it has been. That when it's not really as important anymore, how are they going to be able to explain what they're going to do with all these assets that were once valued at you know millions upon millions of dollars? So it's right. they can't they can't jump quickly. You're absolutely right. It's going to be a gradual progression. Conversations are going to be tough too with stakeholders, right? Because they were promising these investors these probably grandiose visions of returns and look at all these assets we now have. And this is on the balance sheet and XYZ. And so I think that that's going to be another challenging conversation that they're going to have to have from an operational perspective. Well, yeah, but you got stakeholders and then because you're lacking those institutional investors. I mean, this is a market that, this is an industry tailor-made for like those institutional growth-oriented investors that have a three to five-year horizon and understand what that you can't have 80, 90% margins forever. I mean, this is one of the few industries you grow 30% year over year and you're a laggard. It's like, that's insane. (laughs) It really is. 
Gary, just to expand on your point real quick, I think it's so important, though, when operators have that North Star metric where they understand all decisions are predicated based on this is what we're driving towards and not looking inwards and more of a defensive metric, like you said, saying, you know, we've got to protect, we've got to protect, because I think that standpoint in an industry that is growing as fast as ours is going to hinder the long-term success of companies. And I think if you're making decisions like that now, I can't imagine what you're doing on a day-to-day all the way down through the lower-level employee who's thinking that same perspective, because as you know better than anyone, you know, messaging starts up top and everyone else follows suit after that. Yeah, I mean, you never want to sacrifice quality. We, we pick a lot of people up who complain about coming from other shops where they talk quality, but they don't practice it because they look at the budget. You know, we're doing it the other way because if we don't have quality, we can't attract brands. We don't attract brands. We don't have products to sell. So you know, I think from our perspective, we've kind of hitched our wagon onto the fact that we've been in rented space for quite a while with these crazy high prices that people would pay for a flower in a bag and that at some point it's going to mature. And just looking at other industries and certainly looking at California and what works there and bringing it to the East seems like a reasonable way to go. Now, I'd say the last six months have sort of proven that out a little bit. And we didn't think it was going to happen this fast, don't get me wrong, but we thought it was 12 to 18 months out. But just in the last six months, you know, we've seen that sort of margin compression and people starting to pivot. Uh, for us, we were one of the few MSOs that had double-digit sequential growth. I mean, it was you know 10%, nothing to write home about, don't get me wrong, but it still showed that there is some validation to that model. And it's a flexible model as a result. We, by not being so asset heavy, we can adjust to the market a little bit easier. So we're not overly committed one way or another. For those who are looking to get in touch and learn more, where can they reach you and other members of the team? Sure. So obviously you can go to our website, www.tillholdings.com. There you'll find contact information. You can reach out for investor relations, general inquiries, pretty much if we have any jobs posted, uh, that'd be a way for you to, to join the firm as well. So that's a good starting point. Pretty much all of our news and all of our events coming up are there. Cool. We'll link it all up in the show notes and we'll be looking forward to the Long Island operations. So all of our listeners who are out here can get out there, including myself. Thanks so much for your time, Gary. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.